Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of The Rebound. It's a small world after all, or what's happening in micro-fulfillment? I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Eskenazi. And joining us today is Mark Wolfrat. Mark is the founder and president of MWPVL International, a supply chain consulting firm. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. Now, maybe Disney was right. It really is a small world or a micro world. After all, micro-fulfillment is one of the hottest topics in order fulfillment and distribution today, as retailers try to get closer and closer to their customer. It's especially true of brick-and-mortar retailers and their e-commerce operations. So just what is micro-fulfillment, and how is this space evolving? That's what we're going to talk about today with Mark, who's been following this space almost since the inception of the concept. Mark, you and I were together when I toured my first micro-fulfillment solution in Salt Lake City at Dematics Operations. A lot has happened in the two years since, and I think there's some confusion about just what is a micro-fulfillment center or MFC. So how do you define it? I would define it as being distribution center automation and that being applied to almost a retail context. So kind of the crossroads between distribution center automation and retail and on a very small scale to enable a retailer to access a large metropolitan market with same-day capability to be more competitive with the incumbents in e-commerce. I think that's how I would define it. Mark, when you take a look at the sort of the the market space, third-party logistics providers, um, e-tailers like Amazon, they're building out networks um, in a variety of different formats and a variety of different sizes. Um, And the Amazon, you've got 40 to 50,000 square feet but there's also a number of startups that are on the much lower end, you know, typically less than 5,000 square feet. Give me a sense of, you know, from when you're talking about micro-fulfillment centers, do both of those describe micro-fulfillment centers? Well, the original term micro-fulfillment center was really intended to describe something that would be, you know, in that five to 15,000 square foot range, I would say. And hence the term micro, meaning particularly in the grocery sector, one would co-locate one of these um, micro-fulfillment centers within an existing supermarket store. Uh, Since that original definition came out, and I believe Takeoff was the company that turned or coined the term, um, we've seen quite a variation of concepts emerge. And, you know, on the the one end of the spectrum where you have the micro-fulfillment center in a footprint as small as 5,000 square feet, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Customer Fulfillment Center, or CFC, which can get up to 350,000 square feet. And then in the middle, you have what I would term the EFC, which is the E-Commerce Fulfillment Center. And those can range. I mean, they, they can be 30,000 up to 150,000 square feet. And that is uh, another high growth area of the marketplace is what I term the EFC. So are MFCs, primary, or even the EFCs, 
are they being primarily used for buy online and pick up in store? You know, what are sort of the, the models they're using in terms of fulfillment uh, for the customer? Well, definitely buy online, pick up on uh, at store, also buy online and deliver to home. So in, in order to do that, typically the scenario would be the MFC would be responsible for the portion of the order that can be automated. And then there's oftentimes a hub and spoke network that connects the MFC to a cluster of stores within a very tight geographic radius, typically 45 minute drive time. So the the order the portion of the order that comes out of the automation is transferred to the store that's nearest to the consumer. There might even be a top-off that takes place at that store for SKUs that can't be automated. And then from there, either the consumer would pick up at the store or there would be a last-mile delivery function to move the order to the customer's doorstep. That's one scenario. Um, another scenario is, and we'll see this in the cosmetic industry, you know, set up a very small footprint MFC uh, and literally process the order in minutes and have it out the door so that the delivery of the merchandise is within hours of the time of order placement. So there's different variations on the theme. Mark, when you talk about, you know, the, the variations in terms of what's driving this, were you seeing this trend prior to the, you know, disruption with the, you know, from the pandemic or has this been accelerated or are we entering a very different market space right now with the MFCs? No, I would suggest the MFC concept was born pre-pandemic, almost as though it was clairvoyant. Uh, this would be a big need at one point in time. I actually visited my first MFC back in 2019, and uh, that was in Miami over at um, Sedano Supermarkets. And when I saw that, I the light bulb went on in my head and said, this, this has the potential to be huge because, you know, we have hundreds of distribution centers, but we have tens of thousands of stores. And not that all stores need an MFC. You know, quite often we have a one MFC servicing a cluster of say, 10 stores, but the market potential for MFC is huge. So what's driving this is really the need for speed and convenience. I mean, we've grown to love the convenience of having having the ability to place an order online and then to have it turned around quickly. In the beginning, the speed factor was less prevalent than it is today. So competition in the marketplace, and particularly Amazon and Instacart and other companies that are really developing competitive advantage around speed, this is what's driving the marketplace today. Most companies prior to this level of competition intensity, most companies were quite happy with next day delivery. And it's turning out that next day delivery is just not fast enough anymore. Today, you look at what's going on in New York City as the poster child of what I'm talking about. And you've got companies like Fridge No More and Gorilla and, uh, and others that are promising not two-hour delivery, but 15-minute delivery between time of order placement and receipt of goods. And they're actually able to do it. So that's, that's beyond crazy. That's, that's downright, you know exciting to see how far people can push the envelope in terms of service level. Uh, you know, Mark, uh, interesting to that 15-minute um, level that you just mentioned, I just did an interview with a, a company called Drone Express, which is doing a pilot with Kroger. Uh, and it's not really part of Kroger's, you know, MFC strategy, but rather their source strategy where uh, Drone Express can deliver a five-pound package and uh, what they're targeting uh, or what Kroger's targeting is customers who live 
within two miles of a Kroger store. And the idea is the 15-minute delivery, that you can place an order, you know, because it's only five pounds, it's going to be a limited number of things in the order. Uh, but the Drone Express uh, woman said to me, you know, five pounds will get you a rotis- chicken rotisserie dinner and uh, all the fixings. But uh, you can place their order, the order, they can pick it, take it out to the drone hangar in the parking lot and, you know, deliver it to your yard in 15 minutes. So that, um, you know, it's still at the pilot stage, but that need for speed is really coming through. Um, one of the things that you talked about was that, uh, you know, grocery was an early adopter. So two questions. First, why grocery? And now that the concept has been around for a couple of years, are other retail verticals looking into the concept? Yes. Yes. The answer to that question is yes. Well, why grocery? I mean, a lot of this just goes back to, you know, the moment in time that Amazon acquired uh, Whole Foods. I forget the exact year, but it goes back a few years now. And and um, at, at that instant in time, the, the entire grocery industry went into the war room to figure out, you know, what would be our next move. And what emerged out of this whole exercise, you had a technology company that is already, you know, extremely capable in terms of raising the bar on speed of delivery and service level. And the first thing that Amazon did was they, you know, they just basically made every single Whole Foods store into a also distribution center in effect because with the 500 Whole Foods stores that are out there, they quickly made the two-hour you know, home delivery capability uh, an immediate service offering. You know, how do you compete against that if you're somebody that is um, you know, just on in the first inning? As far as e-commerce is concerned, a lot of grocery retailers immediately signed up with Instacart to get that similar level of service going. And that's really what led to the next level, which is the MFC concept, because there are a number of issues that grocery companies face when they partner with Instacart, and not everybody wants to do that for a whole litany of reasons. And so the people that were more interested in controlling their destiny immediately started pounding the pavement to look for automation solutions to speed up the time that it takes to pick an order. And what evolved, you know, there's really two types of orders in the grocery world. There's the express order, that's $35 that somebody wants in two hours. And then there's the shop ahead order that's more like $135, where they're perfectly happy waiting for tomorrow. You know, in in the world of grocery, if you're going to do express, you can't go out with 20 orders for delivery. You can only go out with maybe two or three orders. Reason being that, you know, if if the person's got a non-refrigerated car trunk, they can't be carrying chicken breasts and ice cream for four hours as they go make their deliveries. So everything was immediately designed around, you know, a a very small radius around the store. And so when Amazon set up their home delivery capability, it was, you know, order online, we'll deliver it to your house for free, uh, $35 minimum order size, and we'll have it to your doorstep within two hours. And, And when that happened, the whole world changed overnight, and hence the MFC concept was born. Mark, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, within supply chains, there's a lot of copycats. When you see one organization being successful, you tend to see quite a few jump onto it. When you see the, you know, as you're describing the grocers and they're learning really quickly, looking forward, what are the strategies or network designs that you see that are emerging that could be really game changers for a lot of these organizations? Well, it's funny you ask because I'm involved in a number of projects right now where we're studying just that. And the question that has to be answered is, if I'm a company and I have 200 stores, 300 stores, whatever that number may be, 
do I have enough urban density within a cluster of stores that cost justify deploying uh, an automated MFC solution? And so, you know, it, this type of idea works well in metropolitan markets where you have high population density, right? Like Philadelphia, Washington, these types of places. You get into the rural areas where there's less population density, and, and it just doesn't make any sense at all economically to do this. So the first thing we look at is where are the stores geographically located? Do we have enough density within a 45-minute radius to have a number of stores serviced by an MFC? If so, what does it look like to process those orders uh, from a cost standpoint uh, out of the MFC, transport them to the from the hub to the spoke stores, unload them at the spoke stores and top off, and then either do delivery or pick up from there? What does that cost relative to actually filling the order out of the store? And what I've learned is that you know the volume of orders that you push through the automation engine has to get to a reasonable level in order to make the math work. You can't be doing this on a small scale. One of the issues is that automation has a relatively high ongoing operating expense associated with it. So it's not just about the initial capex. You also have you know, the maintenance of the automation system. You also have, in some cases, transaction fees that are being charged by the MFC solution provider. And so you have to do the 10-year cost of ownership to judge whether or not it makes sense to even do this. So my understanding really is that companies that are jumping on the bandwagon at this early stage are either doing this for higher volume, what I call EFCs, or they're doing it just to get all of this activity out of the store. They want to improve the quality of life for the in-store shopper. And, you know, when the in-store shoppers at the banana counter trying to compete with 20 valet shoppers with their, their big carts with nine totes, that's not a pleasant experience. And so they end up defecting and, and crossing the street and going to the competition. So much of this is also about just improving the quality of service for the online shopper. You're dealing with pristine inventory that's within an MFC that the public isn't touching. Much higher order fill rate comes out of that. But also just improving the quality of life for the in-store shopper because, you know, the narrow on supermarket aisle is no longer congested with all these valet shoppers. So those two are big wins in the grocery world. And that's why I think we'll see more of the MFC type investment into the future. But I also think that we'll see more MFC investment, uh, but on a larger scale, not so much the, the type of system that does 3,000 orders a week, more the type of system that does 10 to 15,000 orders a week, which means big cities, right? And the poster child of, of what I'm, I'm talking about is what Aqua USA is doing with Peapod and and giant food stores in Philadelphia. You know, they're putting up a 125,000 square foot warehouse building. They're equipping it with a, a large auto store system. And they're going to do 15,000 orders a week for the Philadelphia market, which is 6 million people. And a lot of those people currently don't shop at giant food stores today, which means they'll be able to increase sales to new customers that they previously didn't reach because the customer didn't live close to the store. So to me, that is a, a brilliant strategy that's going to make economic sense for, for Aho when they go live with this next year. Mark, last question. The solution you and I saw was a, you know, was a miniaturized version of a highly automated goods-to-person solution. A few weeks ago, I had a chance to visit uh, with AutoStore uh, at their New Hampshire headquarters. Um, and as you just mentioned, AutoStore makes one of the uh, competing solutions out there. But when I asked um, the AutoStore guys, you know, what do they see in the market? They said their biggest competition is still manual fulfillment in the store. 
So, you know, what's kind of the diversity of solutions you're seeing out there from Instacart or the uh, the store shopper pushing, uh, you know, the cart with nine orders versus something like a uh, takeoff canap or Dematic or auto store system? Just give us a sense of the landscape to take us out. Right. I mean, the majority of people are shopping from store right now to solve this issue, right? They have somebody, either their own personnel or they have an Instacart relationship or shipped or one of these companies that does the valet shopping and the delivery function. Nobody in the grocery space wants to do the delivery function if they don't have to. So it's convenient to have that relationship with Instacart um, to go and have all that work done. The issue becomes a customer shopping on the Instacart platform, not your platform. And so the relationship they have is not with you, the retailer. The relationship they have is with Instacart. And that's becoming a thorny issue for many retailers. So, you know, if your order volume is a thousand a week or less at a store, and most people um, seem to be able to, you know, handle that type of order volume from the store itself. And, and that's the way they'll do it just to stave off any type of investment requirements. But once you start exceeding a threshold, and for some it's a thousand, for others it's five to six thousand orders a week. You know when they start seeing uh, the armor crack, and once you exceed a certain threshold, it, life becomes unpleasant in the store. And so at some point you need to do something. If the online channel continues to grow, and we don't know where that's going right now, but if the online channel takes over even twenty percent of sales for the grocery world there will be a, a very seismic shift towards doing something. And that doing something doesn't have to involve automation. It could involve a manual operation that's in a separate building that is a hub and spoke environment that serves multiple stores where people are picking with shopping carts, you know, nine totes, nine orders at a time. And there are people who prefer to do that because it's flexible. You know, they don't really know where this, where this is all going to, and they don't want to spend a tremendous amount of capital on it. And if there is a spike in volume for any reason, you can always throw more bodies at the problem. Automation tends to be designed to a certain scale. And um, when exceeded, it doesn't work uh, anymore. So there are companies that are looking to do things. You know, Spartan Ash is a classic example of a company that's doing things manually uh, for their particular needs. And so you're seeing in-store, manual dark store, micro-fulfillment attached to a store, micro-fulfillment in a separate building, like we call it an MFC dark store. And then on the very other end of the spectrum, the CFC, which is Kroger Ocado's story, large monolithic warehouses. The one they put in Florida and near Orlando is servicing a radius all the way from Tampa up to Jacksonville. So there's quite a range of solutions that people can pick and choose from, and each one has its pros and cons. Uh, Mark, thanks so much. By the way, I, th I think the last point or one of the last points you made, which is really important, was also made by the auto store guy, which is the um, the retaining the customer and the customer experience um, has been a big driver for some grocers who who don't want their customers shopping on somebody else's platform to shop in their stores. They want to they want to control the customer and control the customer experience. And and uh, I was glad you pointed that out. That's all the time we have today. I want a special thanks to our guest, Mark Wolfrat, and thank you for joining. We hope you'll be back for our next episode. For The Rebound, I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Ashkenazi. Have a great day, everyone. The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and STMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.